Welcome to the Hale Report. I'm Larry Hughes Hale, editor in chief of EconView, bringing you unconventional views on the global economy from Chicago. Our guest today is Jim Bianco, head of Bianco Research, a frequent guest on all the financial news shows. But whenever I hear his clarity and sound bites about where the economy is headed, I think I'd really like to hear more about his thinking. So our podcast today, June 28th, 2019, is an opportunity to do just that. Jim, welcome to EconView. We've known each other a long time. Um, and before we dive into the murky depths of monetary policy, um, the question I always ask my guests is, how did they get interested in economics? That's a good question. I started with um, graduating from Marquette University in Milwaukee, 1984. That's now 35 years ago. But we're not counting. Yeah, we're not counting. I am. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I went to work on Wall Street. And I, I bounced around in various strategy jobs on Wall Street. And then in 1990, I moved from New York City back to Chicago. And I took a job with a bond brokerage firm called Arbor Research and Trading, which I'm still affiliated to at this day as their director of research. And that kind of morphed itself into being more of an economics monetary policy person. In 1998, now this is 21 years ago, uh, I spun myself off as Bianco Research with Arbor as my partner and my marketing agent, which they remain to this day. And, you know, when I think of your research and read your research, I think of you as very data-driven, but still you have the big picture. Is that a fair way of looking at how, how do you do your analysis? I like to say I like to start with a chart or a table of the statistics that I've created myself. So it's something you haven't seen because I had to create it and then use that as a launching point to explain a certain situation or philosophy in the market so that I could say, look, here's a chart, and it shows you how it's working or some data and how it's working. So I try to merge opinion with some uh, analytics, if you will. And uh, as of today, I think we have the best-performing June stock market in the past 80 years. What's your general view about where things are going today? I'll caution about that is correct. That is an absolutely correct statement that it is one of the best Junes in 80 years. December was one of the worst Decembers uh, in 70 years as well, too. That is a statistical artifact because the market has had a tendency to turn right at the end of the month, right at the end of the year, so that you get all of the gain in the month of June, you get all of the loss in the month of December, and so you don't spread it out over partially over like the beginning of one month and the other part of another month. And so you wind up with these um, weird scenarios. Now, that said, you're right that what's happened big picture is we had a 20% decline in the stock market through December. And then by April 30th, we were back at a new high. That is not only the fastest that the market's ever gone down 20% and gone to a new high, it's far and away the fastest that the market has ever gone down and gone to a new high. Why is that happening? That's a good question, and I would argue that welcome to the world of macro investing in ETFs, where we don't sit around cocktail parties anymore and talk about stocks. We sit around cocktail parties and talk about whether we own the S&P 500 or the Russell 2000 ETF, and we're all being driven by we either have to be in or out, this binary decision in the market. And the binary decision in the last six months was the Fed's going to raise rates too much, out. The Fed is pivoting towards getting more dovish back in. And that seems to be what's driving the market more. 
than those quaint ideas of how's the management doing? What sales look like? You know, what's the price to book? All that stuff that used to matter. The end of stock picking. Yeah, there. So uh, you could look at the returns of stock pickers relative to the index. And um, it's been very difficult for them. They haven't done worse than they've ever done in history. The difference was in 1985, if I was a stock picker and the Dow, and the S&P was up 20 and I was up 18, uh, well, I was up 18. I didn't have a zero fee option to buy that whole index that was going to give me 20%. That's what's putting them under the gun right now. Do you think the Fed is too influ- influential? Influential in... On the markets? On the markets. You think the, the markets take the Fed too seriously? Is We're talking about tiny basis point changes here, really. Yeah, kind of. I, I want to answer the question two ways. One, yes, the Fed is too influential. That is an artifact of the post-crisis era with extreme and unconventional monetary policy that they've done, that they've inserted themselves into the game so much. I one time said, it's almost like the Federal Reserve chairman is the chairman of the board of every S&P 500 company. Now, there's a, there's a CEO that matters more, but there are at least a board member of every company and that they have that kind of an influence. And that's because of what happened in the post-crisis era. Uh, are markets wrong for paying that much attention to the Fed? No, I don't think they're wrong because of that potential of extreme policy and that macro viewpoint. There used to be a point 20 years ago when I used to talk about the Fed in the macro viewpoint. I don't care about that. You got to give me a name. Give me a name. Give me a QCIP. What can I buy? And, you know, today it's you can buy the S&P 500, the Russell 2000, the, the Morgan Stanley World Index. You can, you can express it that way. So macro factors like the Fed matter more and the ECB matter more uh, than they used to in the past. So, Jim, if you were the head of the Fed, what do you think about their communications policies? We had the conference here in Chicago, Fed Listens. What do you think of that effort? A couple of things about their communication policies. Um, I think it's terrible. Uh, I think it's terrible because they're stuck in the past. When they want to communicate with the world, uh, we'll send the chairman out on 60 Minutes. That's fine. That is a segment of the market that you are of the populace that watches 60 Minutes, but that is not a broad segment of the market. Then we'll send them out on CNBC or Bloomberg or Fox Business. But they're not, they're not on Twitter. They're not on social media. They're not trying to expose themselves or uh, expose themselves uh, uh, broadly. And I don't think they're really with it. I think that if when I talk to Fed officials, why isn't the Fed on Twitter? And you still get kind of that nervous laugh from them. That, oh, that's not a serious thing, is it? Well, it just elected a president. I think that would qualify it as being kind of a it's serious, serious thing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it's a way you can reach a lot of people um, uh, in, in, a, in a big way. And I still think that they're struggling from that from a, con, uh, from a communication standpoint. Fed listens. Uh, I'm going to give them credit, a lot of credit, because... The basis of what they're doing is they're saying, hey, a lot of things that we think don't work right. Why aren't we getting inflation? Why isn't the economy behaving like, we, like the models thought it would? And instead of let's hunker down, close the doors, and ask all the PhDs within our walls to work harder to figure it out, let's throw open the door and ask other people in the marketplace to do it. Great. 
you know, you're, you're, you're going about it in a, in a, in a right way. I'll quibble a little bit about who they're talking to, and I'll give you one statistic because uh, I looked it up recently. There's going to be 12 of these Fed listens tours. The biggest was the one in Chicago at the beginning of June. Through that date, they had 114 different speakers at all the seven uh, Fed listens tours. Two of them were bankers. None of them, zero, were what you would call financial market people. Not market participants. Yeah, not market participants. You operate through the financial channel. You operate through trying to influence interest rates and asset prices. Yet you don't talk to them. You did talk to the. Uh, you did talk to a manager of AOC's office. You did talk to a strategist in Cory Booker's office, but you won't talk to market participants. And then you scratch your head and wonder. Why does the market do X and Y when we do something? And why is that happening? And why don't you try asking them? And, oh. you know, and that is so I don't want to be too down on them. I want to say, look, they're doing about it in the right way, opening up, asking questions. They just got to keep going. They got to keep going in that. And I think they're going to get better answers as they move forward. So the right question to the wrong people. Right. Is exactly. Basically it. Yeah. You know, uh, and of those 114 of them, you know the vast the the, the vast plurality of them were academic uh, PhDs, right? And there's a debate about that now. Are 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 these the people we should be listening to? People who have never had any market experience, right? And um or real world experience. I think this debate predates what's going on. If you back up a couple of years back to the Obama administration, he uh, nominated uh, uh, UCLA professor Peter Diamond who won a Nobel Prize in economics. And you know what happened with his nomination? Nothing. It just kind of died of, of neglect. Nothing. It just never moved forward. And it just, he withdrew his name after, after some frustration. Early on, before we had Herman Moore and, um, uh, I'm sorry, Herman Cain and Steve Moore, uh, <laughs> before those two, we had um, Marvin Goodfriend, who was the director of research of the Richmond Fed, and Nellie Lang, who is a PhD that is widely respected at the Fed. And these are two people that if you were to say within the Fed, hey, Trump just um, put Goodfriend and Lang up as nominees, they'd go, very good. That's exactly what we want. Nothing happened. Uh, Goodfriend had a hearing, never got a vote. Lang never even got a hearing. Then we had the November elections, and then like everything has to start over again. And then they both withdrew. So it's not just uh, Trump pushing this, but going back to the Obama administration, it was like, here's a well-respected PhD in everybody's eyes roll. We don't want them as policy makers. They are absolutely critical in discussing the formulation of policy. They bring a very important input. But when it comes time to making that policy, we, we seem to want to go in a different direction and get more practical people involved with this, more real-world people uh, involved with this as well, too. And I would agree with that sentiment, and I think that that's what President Trump was trying to do with Moore and Kane, except he picked two guys that had a lot of personal baggage. Right. And so I think the next people that will pick up kind of be like them, just without the baggage as well. What's your thought? <laughs> well, I think that you should have a mixture. 
And I think that I think though that some of the key questions, and I was going to ask you what key questions. What are the things that puzzle you about the economy today? Is it the productivity issue, our wages, um, inflation, the lack of inflation? If you had all that research power that they have at the Fed, what would be the key topic that right. you would use that for? I, you know, before I jump, I'll jump in and say I agree with you. you should have a mixture. Lael Brainerd, who's on the Fed, has a PhD from Harvard. Um, uh, Rich Clarida, the vice chairman, has a PhD from Columbia. There's a number of uh, Federal Reserve Bank presidents, Richard Williams uh, in uh, New York and Bullard in St. Louis and even Charlie Evans in Chicago that have PhDs as well, too. So there's no shortage of PhDs at the Fed. And so they're trying to push back. But to your question about what is surprising everybody right now is the lack of inflation. Right. We have a 10-year expansion. We have had the most aggressive, globally, the most aggressive monetary policy ever. That at some level, this should have produced some level of inflation. And yet, it really isn't. And it's got everybody perplexed, as I said a second ago. That's why they're holding Fed listens. Where is it? Why isn't it happening? What are we missing? And I think that that's a big part of what they need to look at. Now... My take on this is something that the Fed is, would be uncomfortable with, and that is it's more of a global phenomenon that really when you look at monetary policy, you ask me, is, is the Fed influential, and should the market move a zillion points every time the Fed chairman speaks? The U.S. market now does that when Mario Draghi speaks. It has actually done that when Mark Carney of the Bank of England has spoken as well, too. There's even been a couple of instances when Kuroda from the Bank of Japan has made statements and the U.S. stock market has moved. If you aggregate what all the central banks are doing with their balance sheets, I think you would find that the answer would come together. So if you're trying to figure out what is it about monetary policy in the U.S. economy that is keeping U.S. inflation low, how about... U.S. inflation is low and, and, and uh, kind of a conundrum. So is European inflation. So is Japanese inflation, the big major economies. So is it everywhere else. And they're all facing the same problem, that it's all somewhat related to each other. And, you know, um, I heard you speak at the Fed on Monday at the GIC conference. And you made some intriguing comments there. And one was that maybe where monetary theory needs to change, maybe at the lower zero, at the effective zero bound, effective lower bound, that that the rules don't operate the same way that they used to. And do you think that's we're getting closer to the truth, looking at the low interest rates as the fulcrum? Yeah, I would say for, as a history point, whatever monetary regime you're operating in, they usually last between 30 and 50 years, and then they change. So this is nothing new. The latest one we're operating under started in February of 71 when we got rid of the gold standard, uh, pegging the dollar to $35 an ounce. This is 47 years old, so we're about in that range when it's time to change. I think really what the answer is, is, is it, it's a twofold answer. We operate in a fractional banking system. What central banks do, and this is monetary theory 101 back from college, what central banks do is they create reserves. Those reserves go to the bank. The bank also collects deposits. Uh, what 
about 10% of all of the deposits that they collect. You give the bank $100, they'll keep 10 in reserves in their vault. They'll lend out or buy securities on the other 90. And what they're hoping for, of course, is that everybody doesn't show up at once and ask for their money back. Right. Because then that's a problem. So we've... Uh, that was a depression. <laughs> yeah. We've instituted deposit insurance. And also, if you want to know why is it so hard to move your account from one bank to the other... They don't want you to run the bank, so they've made it a little bit more difficult as well, too. Now, what the so that's how we create credit. That's how we create money through the, through the financial fractional reserve system. Now we've added post-crisis, post-2009, a new way to increase credit in the world, and that is through central banks creating all of these reserves, which we know as QE or in the vernacular money printing. We're creating more money then there are available investments in the world. So if you are in Germany and you say, hey, I'm a fund manager and I've got some money and I'm looking for an opportunity to invest it for 10 years, what are my available opportunities? And the answer is there aren't any. You can shrink wrap it in, in euros and put it in a warehouse and then insure it and it'll cost you about 33 basis points or one-third of 1% 1 a year. Or you could buy a 10-year... German Bund, and it will, cause, it will yield minus 31 basis points, which is right. essentially the same thing. We've created so much money, there's not enough available opportunities. The supply is so great that we've driven interest rates all the way to negative. Now, why is that? Part of it is a post-crisis period. We have these things like the stress test, as we're talking today, the banks have all uh, increased their buyouts and their dividends because they all passed the uh, stress test at the bank. So we're, we're making sure that they don't lend recklessly. You create money, you keep a lid on lending standards, and then you wind up with an oversupply situation. That is toxic for a, a fractional reserve system. If I'm keeping $10 of yours and lending out 90, I'm leveraged. Now I'm lending out 90 and I'm actually getting a guaranteed loss because of, in, of negative interest rates. Well, we've seen it because the Japanese bank stock index is at a 35-year low. We're at a 32-year low in the European bank stock index. And the only thing that's keeping it from going worse is there's one giant exception to this negative interest rate world, and that's the United States. So you've got a $22 trillion you know, government bond market that is still giving you a positive yield. That's kind of keeping them afloat. So when Jay Powell says effective lower bound, that, uh, that is his new word for zero lower bound. He right. redefined it, meaning that maybe we could go below zero. Be careful if you go below zero. It could have tremendous consequences. And again, it gets back to what I said before. I don't know if they're thinking about this globally. I don't know if they think about it in those terms, that they think about we're the Fed, here's the American banks, here's the American economy, closed system, let's figure out what's the best for that. Not that, heck, if we go negative with Europe negative and with Japan negative, that that leaves nothing. But, you know, they're always worried about what happens to levered institutions. Fractional reserve banking is a levered institution, and you're now giving it guaranteed losses. That's why those stocks are at 35-year lows, and the only salvation it has is the U.S. And isn't this why the inverted yield curve might not signal a recession anymore? It might signal in the long-term treasuries the oversupply, just the oversupply and investment in the last 10 years 
by central banks all over the world. I think that's exactly right, because one of the things I've argued about with the yield curve, I've been very careful in my wording, it says whenever you have an inverted yield curve, especially with the short end being a policy rate, three-month bill of the funds rate, higher than the tenure, that the policy rate is too high. That's all it says. It's too high. Why is it too high? Well, is it because we're fearing recession or lack of inflation? I happen to think it's more of a lack of inflation, uh, but that's just my thoughts on it. But it, that's of secondary consequence to it's too high. It needs to come down. And that's what the market has unmistakably been telling the Fed, that that two and three-eighths rate is too high. And I'll give you a fun statistic. You know, we talked about, you know, data-driven. There are $38 trillion of sovereign debt in the developed world. So take out China, take out the EM, $38 trillion of it. 94% of it yields less than the federal funds rate. If you take out treasuries greater than 10 years, 99% of it yields less than the funds rate. If we rally bonds by 15 basis points in the United States, meaning that their yield on the 30-year bond falls 15 basis points between now and July 30th, the answer could be when they sit at the FOMC meeting go, did you know that there's $38 trillion of sovereign developed market debt? And this interest rate we're going to discuss, the funds rate, is the single highest rate in the entire world. That's never happened before, that, that the outlier rate is the U.S. policy rate as the single highest rate that you could possibly get. Now, of course, I'm, I'm leaving out credit and I'm leaving out uh, emerging markets because there's some kind of credit risk in there. But that tells you how out of line our rates are with the rest of the world, which I think is also a giant reason that the marketplace is demanding that we lower it. We cannot remain an outlier for too much longer. And is this what is setting the stage perhaps for cryptocurrencies? Yeah, I think so. Because if we are in a world of QE, and if we are in a world of, of central banks create money, and if that world means that it's bad for the fractional uh, uh, reserve system. Well, then what's the alternative? What's that m monetary regime change? It's to go to what is called a fully reserve system, which was debated heavily in the 1930s before we did go to a fractional banking system. It was actually called the Chicago School because there was a bunch of economists from the University of Chicago that were pushing a fully reserve system. Now, what is a fully reserve system? You give the bank $100, they keep 100 of your dollars in reserve. Well, how does the bank then make money or expand? They then offer you a time deposit, which you and I know as a CD. And they'll say, okay, Lyric, here's your $100. It's in your bank and it's fully reserved. If you give us 90 of it for one year, you can't withdraw for one year, take a one-year CD, a time deposit, we'll give you X interest rate. And then you would agree to do that because then you know that when you run to the bank to get your money, I only got 10 there. The other 90 I can't touch until this date in the future. And then they can go out and do that. Now, what I've just described, a fully reserved system where all of your money is fully reserved and then you could set some of it aside in a time type of deposit, is almost identical to what Facebook is discussing that they're going to create with Libra, that it's going to be a fully reserved system. So what we've done by putting the fractional banking system at risk is we've set up a, a fully reserved system which cryptocurrencies stepping into the breach are basically creating. Now, I don't think they think of it the way that I just right. said, mm -hmm. but effectively, that's what they're winding up doing. 
if we were back in a positive interest rate environment with a uh, fractional banking system, cryptocurrencies, why would I want to buy this fiat digital currency that yields me nothing uh, when I've got all these other alternatives? But because we've so oversupplied the system, this type of regime is there. I happen to think, I know you do too, that this is, a, when it happens, it's going to be a game changer. Now, the big question is execution. I think that Facebook has got the right idea, but history is full of people that got the right idea, but they just can't execute it. They have to create a, a, a system, a payment system, and, a, and they're going to create what like a de facto central bank, which will fully reserve this money, and it's going to headquarter it in Geneva, so it's separate from Facebook. And uh, you know, But that's all we've got is a white paper, if you will, on this. But I think they've got the right idea. But keep in mind that... Uh, and I'll quote Scott Galloway from New York University. There are 2.3 billion Christians on the planet, and there's 2.8 billion people that have a Facebook account. Facebook is more popular than Christianity, as we talk. There you go. Yes. <laughs> if they get a payment system down, they start with 2.8 billion customers. They can go from non-existent to being very significant in a very, very short period of time. There are 4 billion, billion would it be, smartphones. And everybody's got a Facebook account, or you can open up one of them on a Facebook account. There are countries like Kenya with M-Pesa. They're already used to keep... M-Pesa is a mobile payment system. And in Kenya, it, and it's not that far of an exaggeration, you could go into the outskirts of Nairobi, and there's a, a, a small village, and they all still live in mud huts. And in the village center is a Honda generator, and 50 phones are charging overnight. And during the day, they're all texting money to each other off their phones. They're more advanced than we are in the United States. And China as well. <laughs> and China with WeChat right. as well, too. So if you put together that system, we're ready to adopt it. We just need to execute on that type of system. And so the system, we're ripe for a monetary regime shift to a fully reserved system, and cryptocurrencies are definitely leading the way right now. And do you think central banks understand this? Are they listening to this or not? And how, how could they participate in it? What, are, what do you think the regulatory response might be? I don't know where they are on this because they seem to be all over the lot um, when, when, when I ask them about this question. Um, when I say, you know, the obvious pushback to all of this is, why don't you, the central bank, create FedCoin? Why don't you create, and, and just real quick, what would FedCoin be? It would be a digital currency, Backed by the by the um, central bank, the Federal Reserve in this a hundred percent. Yes, and it would be a a fully reserved system, just like I described before. You would have an account at the Fed. They could pay interest on excess reserves to you in that account as your interest payment. It would be a backbone. What I mean by a backbone is the Fed's not going to hire 50,000 customer service representatives to help you figure out your lost password. They would just allow Google Wallet and Apple Pay and J.P. Morgan and Robinhood. As exchanges. Uh, yeah, uh -huh. as exchanges. You know, to say you can, through your Google Wallet or through your J.P. Morgan account, you could access your FedCoin account, a digital payment account, and then send money back and forth digitally. Now, they get that, but then they say that they're really afraid to do it because that means that they're kind of getting into, you know, disintermediating the financial system, that the JP Morgans of the world sort of do that, and they're going to be disintermediating them. Well, 
The problem is twofold. One, it's going to happen at the crypto level anyway. Anyway. Yeah. yeah and decentralized. Two, and too. two, if the banks all got together and said, we need to put together a kind of a cohesive uh, digital payment system, digital currency that we would have, you'd be at the leading edge of it anyway. I mean, they're not going to do it without you. You're the regulator. So you might as well think about, you know, Fed coin and ECB coin and BOJ coin and tie them all together as another alternative. I do think, I know we've talked about this, that in the future, there won't be just one cryptocurrency. There'll be lots of them for lots of different reasons. And there could be uh, a, a government-backed one in the form of Fed coin, and then there could be a non-government-backed one in the form of Libra or Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever else might come down the line as well, too. And they'll all serve for different purposes and different reasons as well, too. And could this displace be a way of displacing the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency of the world? Will digital cryptocurrencies actually take that on that function? Is this a direct threat, I, I in think, other words? I think it is because, first of all, it's the only alternative to replacing the dollar. The yuan is not going to do it. They're never going to go convertible. The yen and the euro aren't going to do it. They're not big enough. So uh, we're not going to go back to a gold standard because gold is not. There's not enough gold in the world given the size of the uh, world economy. So the only thing that can replace it would be some kind of a digital or a cryptocurrency along those lines. Now, again, it's all a part of the execution. We don't have it yet. Bitcoin is a is a good attempt. Ethereum is a good attempt. So is Litecoin, Ripple. Um, all of the rest of them as well, too. They're good attempts. But eventually, when one of them comes down, and as Sheryl Sandberg at Facebook said, you know, the unbanked, we're trying to go after the unbanked with this. That is code word for it's a free account. It's mm-hmm. free on my phone. I can open an account for free. I can keep my money in there for free. When I go buy a latte at Starbucks, and let's say it costs a dollar, I send them one dollar. I don't send them one dollar, and then there's a payment system that takes two days, which is what the uh, automatic clearinghouse currently takes, or a, a credit card system so that they get 97 cents or 98 cents and from my dollar. They get one dollar instantly out of my account. It, that's what they're striving to do. And yeah, you could see, if I could keep my money on my phone, I do everything else on my phone. Um, they do it in Kenya. They do it in China. No one's afraid to do it. I could keep my money on my phone. I could send my money to anybody. That opens up a whole host of things. And then the final thought for you about this is it also opens up a whole new avenue of business uh, business plans. I've argued that if you look at the New York Times or Netflix, just to use two examples, their ultimate business plan should be New York Times. Here's 50 words of an article, dot, dot, dot. Micropayments. Yes, yeah, send me three cents. Send me three cents to finish reading the article. No fees, no registration. The problem is today you can't do that. Well, you could technically send them three cents, but you really have to send them 35 cents because the minimum payment that the credit card company will take is 32 cents, and then they will get three. Um, Netflix should be, you know, just turn on the meter and a, a penny a minute. So if you watch a two-hour movie, it costs you $1.20. You're paying 15 bucks a month right now anyway. If you watch 10 minutes of something and you don't like it, you're out of dime. And as soon as you turn it off, they take 10 cents out of your account. Maybe it even gets, if it's competitive, that it's a third of a penny a minute. And that we start giving us micropayments. That in this world of, in this online world, we operate with low margins in gigantic scale. Right. We're all looking to get parts of pennies 
from millions and millions and millions of people. The problem is our banking system doesn't allow us to get paid that way. So we have to have these $9.95 a month accounts that we wind up paying, and then maybe one month we don't use it, and another month we use it a lot. And this way, it's a kind of a pay-go system. If you think about how much you pay in, in monthly subscriptions, all that goes away to this variable that you wind up doing. That's ultimately what we need, and the payment system utterly cannot deliver it, the least of which is it takes two days to send the money anyway. As it's, and and the right. lastly... Uh, look at the payment system, the SWIFT system to send money overseas. As I joked to you the other day, I said, you know, if you have, to, if you want to send $100 to somebody in Europe, it's easier to f- get a mortgage than it is to send money overseas. The amount of regulation and paperwork and time and cost. But is, Bitcoin, I can it, do that instantaneously, basically for free. Right, yeah. and, right. And then to just prove it, you, they could send it right back to you too for free. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So what you, the world you're describing is a radically different world than the world that and the types of payment systems that we have now will look archaic at some point. But the currencies, I think they're too... Part, parts to what you're you're describing. One are digital currencies, and the other are decentralized currencies. And I think there's a, in my mind, there's a question: which one will win? As you say, Facebook digital currency has lots of followers. All that they have that scale potentially, but Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies that are decentralized. There's no central bank involved in it. Bitcoin's the best performing asset of 2019, you right. know, so far. So there's some momentum there too, but I'm not sure how that race will be completed. And will it be that we have, um, I, I think the answer is the one you gave, we're going to have all different kinds of currencies for different purposes, but it won't be the world that we live in today. Right. And keep in mind too, what you, what you just said too, Bitcoin is more of an investment vehicle. An asset class. An asset class. Mm-hmm. And I could see that the asset classes will be more decentralized in that environment. The payment system, I just want to send money to you. You want right. to send money to me. And we want to do it fast and efficiently. And I just want to push two buttons and get on with my life. There might be a role for a central bank to step into the breach to do, to set up something along those lines uh, as well. Like a too. Venmo kind of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. See, Ven- yeah, exactly. You, you, people have always said to me, but don't we have Venmo? Can't, does, is, did I just describe Venmo? I said, yes, but the difference is in order to have a Venmo account, you need to open up a bank account. And then if you don't have maybe ten or $15,000, you're going to be charged $10 a month uh, just to have a bank account, to have a, a debit card and a, a checking account if you, still, if you still want one. And if you have enough money... Then you can open up a Venmo account, connect it to your bank account, and you could send money back and forth for effectively no extra fee. But that, you know, a third of the country cannot come up with $400 in an emergency. Right. Where is the account for somebody that wants to put $37 in it and send somebody $4? You can't do that at JP Morgan. But in a crypto world, you can do that. And then you open it up to the third world. You open it up to everybody else. That's what the big difference is with this type of system that we're talking about. Well, you can't see a chart in a podcast, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering if you could send us a chart of what you think people, that describes something that you think people are missing, that in five years they'll say, wow, we should have been seeing this coming, something that, that is within your range of vision, and we'll, we'll share it with our, with okay. our listeners. Yeah. yeah, I got a couple of ideas in mind about... Um, what I could definitely send uh, them as far as uh, where they're going to go. But I'd say um, 
boy, I, I could go a bunch of different ways on that. Let me think about that. And okay. I'll definitely send you one. <laughs> okay. And we'll, uh, we'll include that. But Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. I think this was very provocative as I knew it would be. And um, I think all of our listeners now will be Googling some of the terms that you used and thinking about maybe we should be looking at the world in a different way, which well, is our purpose. Exactly. Thank you.